again, everyone. This is Mark Mavsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's. I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, the Center's other co-director, Professor Mark DiGirolami, for an episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on streaming platforms like Apple iTunes, Android, and Spotify. Well, Mark, hi, good to see you again. Nice to see you. Yeah, this will be a little bit of a palate cleanser, I think, of an episode. Isn't that right, Mark? Well, we're going to do <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but we'll, we'll do our <laughs> best. So uh, listen, gang, listeners, we're, we're waiting eagerly for the Supreme Court to decide a couple of cases on church and state that we've addressed in earlier episodes. Um, and we're thinking here of the 303 Creative case, that's the website designer case, uh, and also the Groff case, which is the Title VII case. We've addressed those in past episodes, and we'll address them again when the court decides those cases. But we're waiting, and the court's being a little bit slow about at least 303 Creative. So in the meantime, we thought we would do an episode on some new guidance that the Biden administration has issued, issued just this month, regarding a perennial church and state topic namely prayer in school. And Mark, by law, the Secretary of Education is supposed to issue these reports, right? Yeah, that's right. There are a couple of statutes, one uh, from 1965 and another from 2015 that require the Secretary of Education to issue the sort of uh, guidance uh, on a kind of a rolling basis, you know, every once in a while, almost like a st state of the union or something like that. You know, uh, uh, here's, here's the state of play with respect to what uh, what, you know, people in public education need to know. Right. What they need to know specifically about constitutionally protected prayer in public right. elementary and secondary schools. And in fact, by law, some local education agencies that receive federal funding are required to comply with whatever the Secretary of Education says. So the last time that the Secretary issued guidance about school prayer was in the last administration in 2020, and the guidance that the Biden administration issued this month is meant to be an update, uh, presumably because there's been an important development, right, Mark, since 2020? Well, we've had the Kennedy versus Bremerton school district case, right? That's That's been one of the major developments. Uh, and uh, I suppose, although it's not really stated in the guidance itself, that that was maybe some of the, or one of the moving, that was one of the impetus uh, yeah, issues for issuing updated guidance in the first place. But it's not that it's it's not entirely plain to me just exactly what it is that motivated this new guidance. I have to assume it's the Kennedy case. I mean, they don't say, they just say this is an update uh, since 2020. But anyway, in this case, so Kennedy is a case which we've also discussed on, in past episodes. By the way, this is episode number 51, listeners, so sort of a, sort of a milestone here. Um, in the Kennedy case, the court considered a situation in which a school district had disciplined a high school football coach. Uh, and this, I should say, the Kennedy case was decided less than a year ago. It was last term. Um, the school believed that allowing the coach to pray, he, he liked to pray on the 50-yard line after football games. And the school district said that allowing him to do that would violate the Establishment Clause under the endorsement test that the court had adopted in earlier cases. Um, and the court also argued that the prayers were coercive in a way that violated a different strand of the court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence. Yeah, although my memory mark is, and maybe now it's been a, a little while since I've reread the Kennedy decision, I wonder whether it's that the, the idea that the school district had an interest in 
not violating the Establishment Clause or in the appearance of not violating an Establishment Clause and that that was sufficient to prevent the coach from actually speaking or from Well, that's what the school said. Yeah, that's what the school said, Mark. The school said that if we let, so again, the the facts were that, uh, and we say the facts were somewhat controverted too, but but this high school football coach wanted to pray on the 50-yard line after games. He said, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm not asking anyone to come. I'm not encouraging anyone to come. And the school said, no, we can't let you do that because um, that would be seen as an endorsement by us, by the school district of your religion, which would be unconstitutional under the endorsement test, which comes from a series of cases in the past, uh, including the famous Lemon case, Lemon versus Kurtzman. And in addition, the court said, whether it's an endorsement or not, um, this could be coercive of students. And that would violate the Establishment Clause under a different line of cases, including a famous case called Lee versus Weissman, which is the high school graduation case from about, I don't know, 30 years ago now. Um, And so the the school district said, no, you can't do that. Uh, The coach sued. And in the decision by the Supreme Court last term, the court indicated that the endorsement test uh, on the basis of which the school district had forbidden the coach to pray, the endorsement test was overruled. Uh, or more accurately, <laughs> the court indicated that the endorsement test had been overruled on some unspecified past occasion, and that the appropriate test going forward was what the court called a history and tradition test. Um, and apparently, the coach's prayers would not violate this new test, although, Mark, you and I will discuss this. There wasn't a, in my opinion, there wasn't a great deal of guidance that was given there. Also, the court held that the coach had not coerced any student to join him. Um, and the court indicated coercion would have violated the Establishment Clause, but, but that wasn't the case here. So as we've discussed uh, in past episodes, and as I said just a second ago, I think that Kennedy was a bit vague uh, with regard to the new test, the history and tradition test, and there was quite a lot of argument about the justices, even about the facts of the case. Right, Mark? Yeah, I think that's right. So I, here's the way that I would put it. I think we can distinguish two different issues. There was certainly factual disagreement about how to characterize just exactly what it is that Coach Kennedy had done. So the majority characterized the practice at issue as uh, basically a guy who happens to be an employee of the school on his own time. Um, uh, praying on the 50-yard line after the game had concluded, whereas the dissent characterized this as a, no, you're not, you're not really taking account of the, the other situations or circumstances in which you know, there were uh, uh, um, events or, or circumstances where he had encouraged or perhaps nudged students along to pray. So that was one kind of disagreement, a factual disagreement and a kind of a you know, a complicated one that doesn't go to the test itself, it seems to me. Don't right. you agree, Mark? I do. Well, yes, I, I agree with that. It doesn't go to the test itself. We'll talk about that. I also think the dissent and the majority differed about whether the coach was really on duty or not when he offered these prayers, right? Whether he was still in his official capacity as a coach. And there was some disagreement there as well. That's true. But but again, those are, I want to set those that's one set of disagreements, which is a disagreement Correct. about what the facts actually are. Correct. A second set of disagreements, and these disagreements may be both between uh, the majority and dissent and possibly between you and me. We don't disagree too often, listeners, and even our, our disagreements are, are fairly mild disagreements, but this may be this may be one. 
a second kind of uh, axis of disagreement might be even accepting uh, the facts as being the way that the majority framed them, that this truly was somebody off duty, offering prayers alone without any kind of nudging or, or influence uh, on students. Um, whether that kind of practice was uh, persuasively held by the court under its tradition, history and tradition tests, um, to be distinguishable from other kinds of more constitutionally problematic uh, practices, right? Whether that Correct. was A, fully fleshed out in the majority opinion, uh, uh, and, and B, whether the majority had good historical examples. For myself, I do think that while the majority could have done some more, historically speaking, it could have, it could have uh, delved into the history of this kind of prayer in the context of a government employee. Um, I think actually the majority for, for as new as a, 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 a kind of an approach as this is, did a reasonable job at comparing this particular kind of practice to other kinds of practices, for example, group-led prayer or student-led prayer, where there was overt encouragement by the coach in a context where he was obviously on duty uh, or in or in fulfilling some kind of job employment responsibilities um, from what was going on here. Uh, so, so there, I think that the court does a pretty good job. Well, we do have a disagreement there because I, I actually don't think the court did a very good job at all explaining why this would satisfy the, I mean, the history and tradition test is mentioned just in a sentence or two. Um, and there's not a lot of elaboration. There's a lot of elaboration of why this is not coercive. But of course, that's a slightly different test unless we conflate the two and say, okay, our history and tradition means no coercive prayers. And maybe that would be how they square the circle. I don't know. Anyway, look, so, so listeners, the, the disagreement you see here may explain why this update hardly mentions the Kennedy case. It's, it's in four footnotes, I counted, hardly mentions the Kennedy case and says literally nothing about the new history and tradition test. Mark, you think there may be a different explanation? Well, so right. Another explanation is that the Biden administration just doesn't like the new approach and has kind of chosen to ignore it. Uh, maybe these two explanations can go hand in hand, right? They, A, they don't understand it, and B, they don't like it. So C, they choose to ignore it. D, hoping that it will go away. <laughs> well, that may well be. So, so let's get into the nitty gritty here. So, so listeners, our outline for this episode will be first, I want to, we're going to talk about the new guidance from the Biden administration on prayer in public elementary and secondary schools. And then we're going to talk about exactly what to make of this history and tradition test and, and what to make of the guidelines failure to address it. Okay, so um, let's first talk about the new guidelines that are set by the, the Biden administration. In many ways, the new guidelines are not controversial, given the court's decisions. For example, uh, the document, the Biden administration document states that, quote, government may not promote or favor religion or coerce the consciences of students, close quote, and that, quote, schools must maintain neutrality among faiths rather than preferring one or more religions over others. Okay, that's true as far as it goes, although there are some uh, difficult questions about what it means, for example, to be neutral or to promote or favor a religion. But okay, that's true as far as it goes. Um, the update says further that, quote, a school may take reasonable measures to ensure that teachers, coaches, and other school officials do not pressure or encourage students to join in the private prayer of those officials or other students. 
Um, that is also true. And finally, it says schools may not discriminate against private religious expression by students, teachers, or other employees. Again, that's all true. But the guidance does, I think, I don't know, it goes off track a bit or, or just doesn't address certain things which I think are important to address. For example, um, the guidance states that, quote, when teachers, coaches, and other public school officials speak in their official capacities, they may not engage in prayer or promote religious views. Um, and in addition, it states, quote, teachers, coaches, and other public school officials acting in their official capacities may not lead students in prayer, devotional readings, or other religious activities. Now, those statements are not wrong. Um, in fact, they are correct as far as they go. But I think, Mark, that Kennedy suggests maybe there's some greater latitude here um, with respect to prayers by school officials than the bare language of the guidelines suggests. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, depending on what, quote, lead in prayer, close quote, means, um, you know, the guidance might arguably, right, depending on how we interpret that, it might be misleading, at least, right? I mean, um, well, uh, let's now think about what let's think about what happened in Kennedy itself. He was on the 50 yard line. It was after football games, but he was, you know, still dressed in his coaching attire. He was still part of the, the whole kind of uh, event. And he said a prayer and students joined him on the field. Now, the court said that is just private prayer because no one from the team had to be present. They were free to do other things. This wasn't part of his uh, of the coach's duties. But those facts suggest that actually uh, a school coach can go kind of far in actually reciting a prayer with students present. Right. And again, if we'd say, does it mean that he is leading the students in prayer right. when he does that? Well, I mean, he's he, the I mean, again, it depends on what we mean by lead. Right. He's he's not directing students to pray, but without his presence, would the students be there at all? Um, they're probably there, at least in part, because he's there. And so he is the reason for the prayer. Now, maybe it's, it's conceivably possible that they'd go anyway, but they didn't go anyway until he started doing this. So, um, uh, so right. and in you what's, know. In what's, in, I'm sorry, Mark. And in, in what sense is he not in his official capacity when he's doing this? I mean, he's still on the job. Well, so I guess that's another uh, ambiguity, right? So this is what the dissent says. The dissent says, uh, if the coach is on the job, then he's acting in an official capacity, right? And and but right. that that's question begging in some ways, right? Uh, that's that assumes that he's on the job, but um, this is after the game is has concluded. Uh, you know, at what point does a coach, after the game is concluded, when the coach still happens to be? I mean, does he have to be off campus in order not to be on the job? Is is that the so? I guess one of the one of the interesting uh, issues here is all these terms that you've been raising on the job, neutrality and so on, they depend upon highly fact specific determinations about just exactly. And this, I think, is where the, the practice oriented um, uh, view of the new tradition test might actually be be helpful. Yeah. And so again, listeners, you can, I hope you can hear in, in this discussion. So what Mark and I are talking about is, okay, can you be on the job, but not be acting in your official capacity? Well, that turns out to be a kind of complicated question. And the new guidelines say absolutely nothing about this <laughs> at all. 
which you know leaves an impression that things are a bit more cut and dried than I think they are in in this context. So that's you know again, it's the, the guidelines are not incorrect in, in in so far as they go, but but they might be a little less subtle than necessary. Yeah, and I think you could say the same thing, Mark, about the issue of coercion. Right, the guidance says quote, a school may take reasonable measures to ensure that teachers, coaches, and other school officials do not pressure or encourage students to join in the private prayer of those officials or other students, close quote. And, and here, as, as you've mentioned, the guidance talks about Lee versus Weissman and about the, quote unquote, subtle coercive pressure uh, uh, that uh, this was an opinion by Justice Kennedy, uh, that, the, that the high school... Um, I guess it, I guess it was a high school, but it was a, it was a middle school ceremony. Yeah. Uh, 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 sort of suggested, and and that students would feel sort of uh, peer pressure or other kind of uh, pressure to 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 join in the prayer or at least to be respectful during the prayer, to stand up for the prayer. All that's true, but like you said before, you know, Kennedy seems to loosen up things. It seems to me a little bit more than just a straight reading of Lee versus Weissman might might indicate. Yeah, how I agree with you, Mark. And so, how how does the Bremer, the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District case? How does it kind of the fact suggest this is going to be a little looser now? Well, because because it was for the very reason that we were talking about that the school district was worried about what the coach's prayer was going to do about the subtle coercive pressure about the perception of endorsement that's exactly why it said you can't do this to the coach um uh, because I'm sorry, not endorsement more coercion right about the it wasn't endorsement well, about well no but 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 there was also that worry as well if you remember mark that that the mm-hmm. school district was worried that that um that by permitting the coach to pray that it was going to appear to a reasonable observer that it was endorsing. Right. And that's the, gone. The, and that's gone. And so there's a kind of an analogous thing going on here with the coercion, right? If It's one thing to actually force, oh. you know, if you don't pray, you're going to be off the team. But if we're worried about the appearance of coercion, well, you've got a lot stronger kind of claim in Lee versus Weissman to that kind of worry than you do in Bremerton because, that kind of coercion arguably was present in the Bremerton case. And the court said, no, that's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about coercion. Um, don't right. you think, Mark? Does that make sense? I agree. And and again, listeners, this is the, the point that I've, I'm trying to make, which is, you know, so what the, what the guidelines say is not it's not wrong in itself when they say that, you know, school can take measures to ensure that there's not coercion of students. It's just that by failing to address this case from last year, the guidelines, well, they really are, are leaving out some important nuances now. I mean, it's not as cut and dried as Lee versus Weissman, I think, any longer. And for whatever reason, you know, as, as I say, I want to be fair, they, they include some sites to Bremerton in the footnotes, but they don't really discuss it in a kind of serious way, which I think is really necessary to give guidance to the teachers, the school principals who are going to have to look at these new these updated guidelines and decide what they can permit and what they can't permit. And Mark, if you remember from Lee versus Weissman, one of the issues in, in that was contested uh, between uh, the justices and majority and dissent was the question of psychological coercion mm-hmm. or, or psychological pressure. This, you know, I think Justice Scalia derided this as a psycho coercion test, right? Uh, and, and I think 
Um, there's a lot more of that in the, in Lee versus Weissman uh, than there is in Bremerton, right? I mean, I think in Bremerton, uh, coercion does not extend to psycho coercion, and and I think the guidance kind of elides that question. Yeah, I mean, I think so. so look, I mean, I agree. I think after Kennedy, the the strength of the subtle psychological coercion test has been diminished quite a bit because, frankly. I think there is subtle psychological coercion going on. I mean, even if the coach doesn't say, come and pray with me, um, you know, kids are going to just naturally think I want the coach to see me and I want to make sure he doesn't bench me next time. And it's important for me just to kind of show up. In fact, I think there was even in the case some some suggestion that in the past, not in this particular iteration on the 50 yard line, that some parents said their kids had felt pressure to participate. So but but the court says, no, again, look, uh, the court's going to have to develop this over time. The point that we're making here is if this is a series of guidelines for school officials, the fact that the guidelines aren't addressing this um, is to me a little bit a little bit puzzling and, and unfortunate. And that then gets us to the next point, which is the guidelines say nothing at all about the history and tradition test. Now, now here, Mark, you and I have a little disagreement because I think, well, maybe the guidelines don't address this because... We don't really know what it is. It's really entirely vague in the Kennedy case what history and tradition means. Um, you don't agree with that. Well, I, I think that's too strong. Um, so I don't, I don't disagree that it would have been better. In other words, I could imagine a better opinion than the one that, the, that Justice Gorsuch wrote, in, um, especially a better opinion with respect to just what a tradition test would look like. And that would be from my perspective, an ideal kind of um, uh, opinion would have said, okay, here's here's how we define this practice. Um, if we look historically, this kind of prayer practice in different government contexts and schools and let's say legislative prayer contexts and so on, this really isn't the kind of thing that the Establishment Clause was ever thought before, during, or after ratification of the clause itself to implicate Establishment Clause concerns. And we've got a very, very well-developed historical record isolating this particular practice and comparing other practices that did uh, or were thought to implicate, you know, uh, either because of of coercion or for some other reason. Um, It's true that the court really doesn't do that. It does, I, I should add, compare other kinds of practices. It does it in a kind of a passing way, but it does say, look, if we were dealing with that kind of thing, well, that might be a different sort of situation, a different kind of problem. And honestly, I think that that's the best. I mean, it's not an ideal opinion, but it's pretty good for an opinion that is just mapping out what this new test looks like. It's one of the first well, opinions but, that does this. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mark. But so, so, I mean, I would say two things in response. One is, you know, if you look at other cases in which the in, in the establishment clause area, in which the court has been gesturing to this new history and tradition test, like Town of Greece, there's a much more thorough discussion about okay, what is the tradition of legislative prayer in America? Here, there really isn't. Now, maybe that's because we don't have a tradition of schools and uh, excuse me, prayer in public schools that they want to address. I, I don't really know. So, so I think they could have done a better job. I agree with that. And in terms of distinguishing the other practices that you mentioned, I read that as mostly going to the coercion aspect that, okay, those other prayers like the Santa Fe case involving, 
you know, prayers at high school football games led by students or Lee versus Weissman. Those are different because those are coercive, not because, you know, those are not traditional or something like that. You know, Mark, just in quick response, because the points that you make are, are, are good ones. Um, you know, I've written a little bit about, about traditionalist interpretation, and I think you're right that, that if I were to choose a, a perfect or a really, really great opinion uh, reflecting traditionalist interpretation, Kennedy would not be it. Uh, I mean, it's got some some traditionalist inflection. It talks about it talks about the test that it looks like it's adopting or the approach that it's adopting. But there are other opinions. Bruin is one of them. The Second Amendment case, Dobbs, the abortion case. These are better cases. Uh, setting aside the the uh, result in those cases, just as a matter of method, they're better for traditionalist interpretation. Now, I will say, I don't think that the court is actually adopting a coercion test in Kennedy. Um, It talks specifically about a test based on or oriented toward traditional practices. And it says, well, these other practices, they would be troublesome because they are coercive, but it doesn't say all coercive practices are per se unconstitutional under the establishment clause, because then it's going to get into the kind of problem about defining what coercion means in the first place, which it doesn't do also. Yeah, I have a hard time thinking they would ever say that coercive practices could be consistent with the establishment clause, although it would depend exactly on what coercion means. But, you know, all of this, um, maybe this is why, to be fair to the, the Department of Education, maybe this is why they don't get into it, because they're just they're just debates about exactly what this means. And maybe it wouldn't help school officials to to read these debates and not know what to do. But I still think it would have been a better idea to at least flag some of this. Now, Mark, you think there are also other parts of the guidance that seem that seem off. Where else do you think the guidance goes? Excuse me. <laughs> where else do you think the guidance goes astray? Well, so it, it look, it, it says um, that. Uh, categorical distinctions between government-sponsored and privately initiated religious expression is, quote-unquote, crucial to understanding the religion clauses. I don't think that I've ever seen that in any of the court's opinions, uh, including the more recent opinions involving the Establishment Clause. Uh, and I think that that's probably a holdover from uh, from from previous uh, sort of, you know, lemon, lemon-esque lemon uh, tests. Uh, it also says that government, quote, may not favor religion, close quote. That also seems wrong to me or wrong, at least in some iterations of it, just as a descriptive matter. It, it's, it, it, um, it, it may not favor religion so much as to violate the Establishment Clause. That's true. But um, in terms of favoring religion, well, I think actually <laughs> we've got a free exercise clause that seems to favor religion, right? And, uh, right. Or at least the exercise of religion. So um, so that that seemed um, at, at least at the very least incomplete. As, yeah, as a, I mean, as there, a is, guide. there is there is some language in older cases, particularly about government may not favor religion over non-religion, but I'm not sure that those statements reflect the court's view of these things today or or have reflected what the court thinks for some time. Well, anyway, so so listeners, that was our kind of go uh, run through of this of these new guidelines. Um, we, as I say, they're correct as far as they go, but I think both Mark and I think they leave some things out and, and therefore may may paint an incomplete picture. 
just one last little quick point. Look, on the, on the history and tradition test, this is a new test, right? It's a new approach. Um, when we think about how often and how vague principle-based or ideas-based approaches, separationism and so on, have, and, and those have been around for, you know, more than 50 years, and we're still debating about just exactly what they mean and how, how little guidance they provide to lower courts or to school districts and so on. So give it time, Mark. Give it time. Mark, Mark is not going to look at history. Mark is not going to let the history and tradition test go undefended and my hat is off. Look, I'm not opposed to tradition. I'm not. I'm just saying I don't think this was this opinion really did a whole lot to advance something to give guide to give guidance to lower court judges to say nothing about guidance to school officials who have to now figure out what is a historical and traditional practice. Anyway, so as I say, uh, listeners, we thought we'd spend some time on this while we wait eagerly for the court's opinion in the 303 creative case and also in the in the Title VII case and the Groff case. Um, those decisions are probably coming in the next several weeks. And when they do come down, uh, we'll be right here analyzing them for you. So please stay tuned. Um, meanwhile, that's it for us this time. Um, this has been another episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on lawandreligionforum.org and also on streaming platforms like Apple iTunes, Android, and Spotify, and others. Okay, that's it for now. See you next time. <laughs>